0: Living your story right now in this moment. You know, no two stories are alike. We are all unique. We all have a different lens through which we see the world. We all have something to contribute, to share, to be. That uniqueness takes courage. It's not easy to stand in your truth. It's not easy to let yourself be vulnerable, to be really seen. To be really heard. So many of us hide. So many of us stay hidden. So many of us make the choice to step forward. To own who we are. To own our stories. To share our voice. The tide is turning. We're moving into a space of deeper vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and love. We're moving closer to greater self-love, self-acceptance, honesty, and empowerment. To get there, to get to that space, means we have to authentically share who we are. It means we have to authentically show up as our true selves. The magic is in sharing who you are. The magic is in sharing your story that's where this series comes in. Own your voice. Love yourself. Stay true to your story. Dive deep into your vulnerability. Shine in your authenticity. Once you do, there's no stopping you. Stay honest. Stay brave. Stay true to who you are. Welcome to Seek the Joy podcast, the power of storytelling.
1: and thighs itched like crazy but I really had no clue why. There was no rash or dry skin. My skin actually looked crystal clear. The itching eventually started distracting me at work and I scratched so hard that I would break the skin. I just couldn't help it. A few weeks later I sat slumped over with confusion in a dermatologist's office. We had talked about the itch party that had been going on and Dr. G was about to send me on my merry way with a special prescription for eczema. I hesitantly asked her, I know this isn't your terrain, but can you feel my neck? I have a mystery lump above my collarbone, and it feels like it's getting bigger. I might be crazy, but do you mind checking? I laughed nervously after blurting all of that out at once. After some firm pressing all around my neck, Dr. G strongly recommended I visit a general practitioner, so much so that she called me twice the next week to ensure I made the appointment. More on that later. I had fought Lyme's disease in high school twice and was treated with a pick line, so I was familiar with the doctor scene and understood that I had to follow this path to diagnose the mystery lump and advocate for myself. I was 23 years old and had just moved into Manhattan with two roommates on the Upper East Side. I didn't have a doctor in the city, so I popped over to my health insurance website to search the directory. I picked one of the doctors that was closest to my apartment. So I headed there for my appointment and got the necessary blood work and chest x-ray and I quickly learned that my sedimentary rate was very, very high, and the mystery lump was a mass that showed up on the x-ray. The doctor quickly referred me to an ENT, a Nears Note and Throat Specialist, to continue the investigation. I went on my own to see the ENT, and after the mystery lump um, got what would be a police-approved pat-down, I was urged to make an appointment with a head and neck surgeon. The ENT casually told me that the lump was one of two things, a severe infection or lymphoma. The confusion flooded my brain again. Lymphoma, uh, like cancer, I managed to squeak out. The doctor reiterated that the first delivery of his assessment. Well, it's either an infection that, you know, caused your lymph nodes to swell, which could be easily rectified with strong antibiotics, or it's cancer. And only a needle biopsy to the mystery lump would confirm this. My heart started racing, and I quickly called my mom to update her. She said, I'm coming with you. The next day, we sat quietly as the giant needle took a swan dive into the mystery lump. It was super uncomfortable, but I knew after a week and a half of doctors and test marathons, we had to get to the bottom of this. The doctor was actually about to review the biopsy right away. My mom and I patiently waited as he scooted into his office to make his assessment. After what felt like an eternity, but was probably only like 10 minutes, Dr. S. came back into the room with the news. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. My heart sunk and my face froze like a statue with wide eyes. He went on to share that it was one of the best cancers to have because it has an effective treatment plan with a high cure rate. I didn't take that as good news initially, and my mom and I walked out of the examination room. I collapsed in her arms and whispered to her, I don't want to die. I am so young and I have a lot more life to live. My mom told me we were going to get through it. The next biopsy was to confirm what stage and type of Hodgkin's lymphoma with the tissue biopsy. So on December 31st, 2007, also known as New Year's, I had surgery so they could take a slice out of the enlarged lymph node. As the ball dropped at midnight, I was fast asleep in a pile of drool on my parents' couch recovering. I had wanted to try to stay up to watch the New Year roll in. Remember Dr. G, the dermatologist? Well, later on, she told me she was quite sure I had lymphoma. She remembered the day in medical school when her teachers warned her not to dismiss young patients with itchy skin. They could actually have lymphoma. And boy, was I glad she didn't skip that day in class. So I started six months of chemotherapy. I still worked full time. I'd go get my chemotherapy every other Thursday and then head to work a few blocks away. I lost my hair and I grew fatigued as the treatment wore on, but I was determined to keep as much normalcy as possible. In June of that year, I was declared in remission. I decided to take on a challenge of training for a half marathon. While I was sick, a few friends had decided to train with Team and Training to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I was inspired by them to tackle my own race. And after four months of rigorous training, I crossed the finish line of the Disney half marathon with friends and family cheering me on. I felt like I was on top of the world. During the race weekend, I felt the lump above my collarbone return. That week I headed to my oncologist's office to get it checked out. A PET scan confirmed the cancer had returned. It's not too common to relapse, so I was actually pretty sidelined. I really had felt that the whole cancer thing was behind me. The treatment the second round second time around was a lot more intense. I remember asking my doctor, can I still run? He stayed pretty quiet as he smiled and said yes, but not as intense as the race you had just, that I just had to run. I'm happy to say I was informed about the impact of the treatment on my fertility. And at the age of 24, I went through the process to freeze my eggs. I have 23 little Laurens frozen. More on that later. By that time, I had started a new role in fundraising and event planning at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, one of the best hospitals in the whole world. I was in good hands. It was more chemo, a stem cell collection, two weeks radiation, high-dose chemotherapy, and a stem cell transplant. I was in isolation for nearly six weeks. I lost my hair again, literally all over my body, and my finger and toenails fell off as well. I suffered from high fevers and throat sores. I couldn't even swallow my own saliva. My mom slept with me in the hospital every night. My friends and family were my true support system, and I really would not be here without them. So that summer, I was finally declared in remission. Step by step, I built up my strength. Recovering to my new normal took nearly a year, and I'm proud to say that I'm now nine years in remission. Fitness changed my life. I went on to run more half marathons, two marathons for Fred's team, running past Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center during the New York City Marathon, And I can't even explain how incredible it was to run past the place that saved my life. About a year after my transplant, a friend introduced me to bar classes at Exhale. I definitely couldn't hold a two-minute plank, but I was darn impressed by the room full of strong humans that could. My teachers inspired me to become a teacher, and Chi Chi Life was started about four years ago. Let me take you back to earlier this year. My husband and I started trying for a family. April 18th, the day after my birthday, I learned I was pregnant. At 7 weeks, I went to my first OBGYN appointment. As I experienced the ultrasound super eager to hear and see our little one, the OBGYN was quiet for a while. She said she couldn't see anything. She eventually stopped and said, "There are a few things that could be happening or that could have happened. A chemical pregnancy where your hCG levels are high, but then the pregnancy actually doesn't quite stick, was how she described it. Or my dates could be off. Perhaps it's just a little too early to see the embryo. I knew, though, that I had been tracking very meticulously in my app, so I didn't really think that that could be the case. And lastly, an ectopic pregnancy, where the embryo implants outside their uterus. So it's actually uh, not a viable pregnancy. She said they'd review my blood work and get back to me the next day. I had a feeling I wasn't going to get good news. And we spoke the next day and she said, well, you're indeed pregnant. So let's wait a full week to do another ultrasound, more comprehensive. So I waited in limbo for a whole week, wondering what was happening inside my body. And ironically enough, that Sunday was Mother's Day and we were with my family celebrating. And it just was kind of wild to not know if I too would be a mother soon. So that Monday, my husband and I went in for the full ultrasound. That took nearly 45 minutes. The technician was silent the entire time. She left, and then another doctor came in to tell me I had an ectopic pregnancy. The embryo was in my right fallopian tube, and I'd need emergency surgery today. So at this point, we were eight weeks along, and I never left the hospital. I had the surgery and recovery has taken a while, both physically and mentally. My husband and I planted a tree in honor of our wandering soul, and we still feel a sense of loss, but no, we must move forward. We may eventually need those eggs I froze nearly 10 years ago. We deeply believe that we'll have a family one day. Over the years, I've connected with so many incredible individuals because of my experience with cancer, and now even most recently an ectopic pregnancy. I would never trade them for the world. And when I think about resiliency, many different contexts come up for me. Perhaps what is obvious to most is keeping the will to fight, to live through and beyond treatment. But what people may not understand is that being a cancer survivor, the resiliency trait is one that is still vital to embody every day. Those internal battles, the fear of the cancer returning, Developing a second cancer, for example, I'm at high risk now for breast cancer, so I'm in a breast surveillance program at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So I've already, you know, in my early 30s, had MRIs, ma- mammograms, trying to, you know, stay on top of it as something were to happen. Uh, other things that go on are scan anxiety, which is anxiety before a PET or CT scan, fertility, dealing with those post effects of treatment. Resiliency is a necessity. My close friends that went through a stem cell transplant deal with intense post effects high blood pressure, cognitive delays, hypothyroidism, heart issues, menopause at the age of 27, 40% lung capacity, and with that, collapsing of her remaining lung twice, eventually needing a lung transplant. But my friends thrive. They run marathons, they start their own businesses, they do Pilates, they take bar. They spin, they walk, they hike Mount Kilimanjaro, they get engaged, they have babies, they go to school, they keep living, they are resilient every darn day. No matter what your obstacles are, I invite you to approach life with the same resiliency as my rock star cancer survivors. We are all fighting our own battles, and how you show up to deal with them is your choice. Choose resiliency. Choose love. In sharing my story, I have learned we are not alone. My biggest dream is to be on national TV, sharing my story of resiliency. I firmly believe we are stronger together.
2: When I was young, I thought plans would save me. As a worrier and a perfectionist, I thought a well-thought-out plan would prevent surprise and would carry me beyond difficulty in life. So I started planning early. Growing up as the oldest child and only daughter in a Catholic family with a military-trained father and an achieving mother, I got the distinct impression that perfection was going to be my route to happiness and fulfillment. At a young age, I hatched the plan to be something important, and by the time I was in high school, that plan involved becoming the first female president of the United States. I couldn't do something run-of-the-mill, I reasoned. I needed to stand out from the crowd. I needed to prove my worth, and that was going to involve doing something nearly impossible. After all, there hadn't yet been a female president. So my goal was set, and I spent the next decade and a half assiduously working toward it. I went to Georgetown University and studied government, then headed straight to law school in an effort to get to my end goal as soon as possible. I had discovered that the Constitution would allow me to run for president by 2012, and I had my work cut out for me. And besides, if I had stopped school to work, my incredibly high student loan payments would kick in, and no entry-level job was going to help me pay those back. By mid-fall of my first year of law school, the cracks in my plan began to show. I hated it. It turned out law school wasn't all about seeking justice and helping the underdog, which was somehow what I envisioned before getting there. Law school was all about teaching you to be able to argue both sides of any argument dispassionately. And justice was a word that rarely, if ever, came up. That same fall I sat in a sandwich shop and hatched a half-baked new plan to open a similar sandwich shop and get my mother, who had always wanted to go to law school herself, to join me in the plan. I was miserable and wanted any way out I could muster. I had found a lovely prepared food shop near my law school in Newton, Massachusetts, and reasoned that I could open one up myself without another day of education. Unsurprisingly, my mother didn't bite at this idea, and instead convinced me to stay in law school for fear that I'd regret it if I left. I had been planning on it for a decade by then after all. After graduation, I practiced law for five years, rather unhappily, and dreamed of a way out of being a lawyer. Instead, four months after having my first baby, a girl, I began a PhD program in women's studies. While perhaps less important than being President of the United States, I decided that having a PhD and being a professor would still make my life seem valuable and struck off in this new direction. My worth still depended on what other people thought of me, and I reasoned that no one would find my path worthy unless I had yet another advanced degree. I was also still operating under the weight of a serious perfectionism. I felt like I needed to be the best at everything I did, And this made trying new things quite daunting. I didn't realize that I had taken this burden into parenting as well. When my daughter was 15 months old, we discovered that her development was behind her peers. Three sweet older women from early intervention came to our apartment to test Gabby in a variety of areas, and by the time they left, declared that she was behind in all of the six areas they tested. I was shell-shocked. My daughter began daily speech, occupational and physical therapy, and suddenly my life revolved around making sure that she caught up with her peers. I felt like a failure. I had yet to do anything, quote, important by the impossible standards I had set for myself, and I'd had a daughter that with her challenges few would consider perfect. Prior to having children, I had thought that having a daughter would be a bit like having a little doppelganger. I imagined that my daughter would be just like me, except with the best parts of my husband added in. I imagined us dressing alike, thinking alike. I envisioned helping her navigate the world as a woman. I saw myself expertly guiding her through the college decision process. Quickly, I learned the necessary lesson that our children are their own people, not extensions of us as parents. My daughter's personality and lessons and challenges were her own, not a second chance to prove my own perfection. My daughter turned out to be the biggest gift I've ever received because she changed the way I look at life and what matters. She made me see myself and my own life differently. Somewhere along the line, it occurred to me that if I judged her worth by the standards I'd set up for myself, perfection and importance as perceived by the outside world, her life would seem not to have value but I knew this wasn't true. My daughter had conveyed her joy and her wonder at life since long before she could talk, and she made people feel loved with just her smile and her shining blue eyes. She made me realize that our value isn't based on our importance or the impossible goals we reach. Instead, our value is inherent. It's not something we have to prove to other people or convince anyone of. It's ours from the start, and no one can take it away from us, much less grant it to us. It is God-given, and it is ours, regardless of what other people do or think of us. This realization helped me to accept myself as I was, and to stop chasing some unattainable ideal as a way of proving my worth. This helped me to love myself and my life as it was, to appreciate the small moments in the day, and to look for joy all around me. When I started keeping a gratitude journal consistently, at the insistence of Oprah, whose show I had scheduled my law school classes around, I noticed how the smallest joys in my days made such a difference. Seeing sunshine, or having a great conversation with a friend, or laughing with my children were what made my list of things I was grateful for at the end of a long day. The more I noticed this to be true, the more grateful I felt for the small things in my life, and the more I focused on those, regardless of what larger worries sometimes plagued my mind. Today, my world looks so different from the one I planned when I was young. It is, in fact, so much better than the life that I planned. It is full of simple wonders and unexpected surprises. Life has required me to become more flexible, to fly without too many plans, and to make the most of what comes my way. This isn't to say I don't have goals that I work toward. I do but I also know that there is only so much that we can plan ahead of time. Because of my daughter though, I am even more committed to making this world a better one. Having a child with special needs has shown me intimately the value of kindness. In a world that can be uncaring and cruel, especially to anyone seen as different, I have watched the way my heart soars when I see someone being kind to my daughter. I have also witnessed the effect of her kindness as an open-hearted and loving child. People respond to kindness in ways that are hard to describe in words, but are evident nonetheless. On Friday nights when we lived in San Francisco, we would walk through the evening fog to a small Italian restaurant around the corner from our house. We went there so frequently that we got to know the owners, the waiters and waitresses. Before long, my daughter wanted to go into the back of the kitchen to say hi to the people working there. She learned the names of every dishwasher and line cook. Each time we were there for dinner, Gabby would walk up to the back of the kitchen and say hi to each of them. And I could see each of them light up when she would do it. The value of the smallest bit of human kindness, the light of recognition in one's eyes, and the power of remembering people's names was evident. When my husband and I would go into this restaurant by ourselves, everyone's first question was, Where's Gabby? She made an impression. Her kindness affected people and caused them to remember her. Though so much is harder for my daughter than it is for other people, her heart and her goodness shine through in a way that is unmistakable. A smile from her with her twinkling eyes or a kind word from her stay with people. They are unaccustomed to a 12-year-old or maybe someone of any age interacting in this way. It reminds me of what Maya Angelou used to say, people will forget what you've said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. I am now guided by these words and by the Dalai Lamas who said, my religion is kindness. I teach both my children the importance of being kind and I hope that our actions can show this to other people. I now believe it is not my plans or our accomplishments that mark the value of our lives, but my presence, the joy I extract from my daily life, my gratitude, and the kindness I extend to myself and others that really matter. This is where my focus now is, and on making the world a better place for my children. As far as being president, that dream of mine has long been gone. I recently heard Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote the Four Agreements, say, however, that each of us are the president of our own nation, meaning of our own bodies and minds. He said that we should all think about what kind of leaders we are of our own realities. I find this concept so fascinating. And it turns out I was president of my own country all along. And so are you. What have you learned about yourself from sharing your story? I am writing a book called Beacon and Joy, which is the same as the name of my website. Both are named after the intersection I lived at in Boston when our daughter was born. The book is about the ways I changed as a person after having my daughter. I used to not be able to talk about her without crying because she's so dear to me and because I used to worry so much that other people would judge her. Or me as her mother. Sharing my story has helped me speak more openly about my truth, and to see how my story is connected both from within as far as the experiences I've had over my life, but also to see what my story might be able to teach others, including people who are achievement-driven, perfectionist, people-pleasers like I used to be. What is your biggest dream? I dream of a world where all individuals are respected and loved for who they are, where people are able to be themselves without fearing reprisal from people who haven't felt brave enough to live their deepest truth. I also dream of a world for my children where kindness is the rule rather than the exception. Having seen the value of kindness in my own life, I want to spread as much of it as I possibly can.
3: This is Michelle Rosenthal, and I am going to share with you the true story of how joy literally saved my life. So back in 1981, I was just a 13-year-old kid and experienced a trauma beyond what a human being should have to go through, and it changed who I was and my ability to feel safe in the world. And... Uh, over the next several years, I just descended down into this incredibly dark post-traumatic stress disorder tunnel that went undiagnosed for almost 30 years. So for a really long time, I led a joy-less life. Whereas I had been a happy-go-lucky kid, after that experience, I became very dark, very depressed, very frightened, full of anxiety. Uh, I never slept, recurring nightmares, the whole gamut of not being able to tolerate any reminders of my trauma and at the same time not being able to think about anything else. So by the time I was in my, my mid-30s, I was really a mess. I had not been able to create a career path. I had just bounced from job to job ever since I graduated college and I was in New York City at the time. And I just sort of went wherever the offers came from because I was just getting through every day, just trying to survive the moment I was in. And so that, of course, also affected my ability to create relationships, friendships, and romances. So I was very much... Alone. I had a great family, but they didn't know what to do with me or how to help me. And of course, I'd gone into therapy, and what I'd experienced in therapy was I was getting worse and worse and worse and worse because just retelling my trauma story over and over really didn't help resolve all of the problems and the issues that it had created and, and the enormous. Um, post-traumatic effects that it left installed and in place in, in terms of my belief system, my values, and, and my general outlook on myself, others, and the world at large. So um, things got really bad, and by my mid-30s, I, I was constantly... Well, I was in this cycle of build a life, like get a job, have an apartment, become stable, and then everything would fall apart. And because I I would put all of my energy into building a life and that distracted me from the stuff that was going on in my head. And then once I sort of stabilized everything, the stuff in my head had a chance to pop up and and just took me down. So I was constantly sort of reactivating and, and reliving parts of my trauma This is normal for trauma survivors, I know that now, but back then I didn't understand what was happening. And I got to a place that was very, very dark, and I, I, I actually became frightened for my own ability to continue to live. And so I did two things related to joy that saved my life. So the first thing I did, and this was back in 2002... 2000, like beginning, a very beginning of 2003. I was so afraid that I was not going to survive what was going on in my head and that it was going to lead me to do some uh, dangerous things that I decided, all right, I had to make, I had to make a commitment to want to live. And so in making that commitment, I, I just, I didn't have a reason I didn't feel I deserved to survive, and so it was very hard for me to commit to living when I didn't feel like I had the right to be alive anyway. So I needed to make that commitment to something else, and what I realized I needed was something that made me feel the joy of connection, and at that time, I was very isolated, very withdrawn. I would literally go to work and come home. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't go out, and uh, I needed something that would help me sort of reconnect to the world and the present moment and get out of my head and into my body in a way that felt good. So joy was really important right from the beginning. And I didn't exactly think about it in terms of, oh, I need to feel joyful because that, that would never have occurred to me. I felt in so much pain. What I thought about at the time was, I need something that will make me laugh, something that will make me feel good. And, and so the first thing I did when I decided I wanted to live was decide I need a puppy. Like right away, I needed a puppy. And I, I have this obsession. I had had at that time an obsession with wheaten Terriers for at least 10 years. And, um, so I decided, all right, I am barely functional, but I am going to get a puppy. I'm going to get a puppy and, and this is going to help. And his name was Bailey. He was 10 weeks old when I got him. He was the funniest thing I'd ever been around. And the joy of my connection with him, I, I, I met him at a breeder's house. I'd done a lot of research. I drove out four hours from the city to to meet him. And she put him on the floor. He ran across the room, jumped into my lap, snuggled up against me and didn't move. And I said to the breeder, okay, this one's mine. And so that was the beginning of how joy changed me because my connection with him was so joyous, so playful, so loving, so present. And right away... I immediately felt a a little more centered, a little more grounded. And over the next several years, I didn't get into a real positive recovery uh, for another four years, But, but Bailey's ability to make me feel joy every day in the tiniest ways from the silly things that he did just allowed me to take that really necessary step ahead to say, okay, I can do this. I can live, and I can live in a state that feels better than I thought I could. So that was the first joyful thing that I did. That was 2003. So then fast forward to uh, New Year's Eve 2006. So like at the end of 2006, going into 2007, I had picked up and moved myself from New York City down to a small beach town in Florida because I felt that I would have a better shot at healing if I could be on the beach and and near nature and in a very calm and, and peaceful environment. And so here I am. In this beach town, my family had come with me, and it was new year 's Eve and we were at this major hotel for a new year 's eve party and i'm i'm dressed up and all of these people are dancing and laughing and eating and singing and having this amazing time i 'm in this ballroom of probably five hundred people and and well they're in the ballroom where am i i 'm in the bathroom, not the ballroom, and I am um, bawling my eyes out, just crying and crying in this stall that another year is ending and that even though I'm better than I was before Bailey, I am nowhere near being free of this trauma that haunts me and crying and crying that another year is going to end having sucked so much of my life with this aspect and another year is beginning and I don't see a way to to heal or fix it. And so I pull myself together, because you can't spend all of New Year's Eve crying in the stall of a bathroom. So I went back out to the ballroom, I grabbed my brother and I said, just dance with me, just get on the floor, I need to move. And so we get on the dance floor and while I'm on the dance floor, I even thinking about it now, I don't know what flipped the switch but something about the movement of my body the beat the freedom of expressing through the music and I'll, and giving myself over and surrendering to the music and allowing the music to hold me and to stabilize me and to lift me up so that i could transcend What was going on in the present moment with my grief and my anxiety and my depression and all this trauma stuff and somehow the music and the dance just picked me up out of all of that so that I could be above it and I could feel a sense of freedom and I as I was dancing I thought this is a weird feeling what is this feeling it's so I don't recognize this feeling. And so I spent a lot of the time that we were on the dance floor saying to myself, what is this feeling? And all of a sudden, this little voice in my head just started whispering and then got louder until I heard it. And it said, this is joy, Michelle. This is joy. And it was incredible. And midnight came and I made a commitment My resolution that year was I am going to go on a joy quest for all of 2007 and Um, Today it's 2018 and I'm still on a joy quest and way more joyful than I was back then because that joy quest that I committed to at the beginning of 2007, I didn't know how I was going to do it. What I did know was I felt joyful when I danced and that was the only time I felt joyful. So I committed to dancing every day and living in a tiny little beach town, it's not like I could go clubbing every night in New York City. Um, So instead I signed up for a dance class every single day of the week. It didn't matter where the class was or what style of dance. I just committed to going. And over a series of weeks, so pretty much for six months, I did this. And that habit of being on a joy quest and committing to joy and deliberately seeking it out, no matter how horrible I felt that day inside my head, little by little, I started to sleep better. I started to feel more comfortable in my body, which was huge. I'd never, since my trauma, felt comfortable in my body. And I started to be a little more social. And I started to realize that we can choose our state. We can choose how we feel. We can create how we feel. And so day after day, I chose joy. I chose the creation of that state of being. And the payoffs have been enormous. I I found the courage to go back into a trauma recovery process that was really, really good and right for me. And that was the year that I completed my entire PTSD recovery. I've been free ever since then. Zero symptoms. So that's a simple way of saying it, it was a harder process, but that was one of the outcomes of my joy quest. The other really happy ending outcome of my joy quest was that I fell in love with my dance instructor and luckily he fell in love with me. So my joy quest led me to a person that allowed me to find deep connection in that place of joy and deep connection in that place of love and deep connection in that place of partnership and deep connection in that place of building a life together. And now looking back, I can see that all the way back to 2003 with that decision to get this little puppy, It was joy that I didn't know at the time was going to be the thing that freed me, but it's joy that is our life force. It is the thing that allows us to tap into our ability to have courage, tap into our ability to create, to hope, to believe in ourselves, to take the leap into something unknown, even if we don't know the how of what we're trying to accomplish. It's joy that sustains all of that. And in that space of joy, anything is possible because we raise our vibration so high that the energy we begin to emit internally and externally changes lives, our own as well as others. So there it is. <laughs> that's that's the, the bottom line of how joy changed my life and how seeking joy completely altered my life from being one of darkness and pain and trauma to one of lightness and expansion and creativity and happiness. And so I offer that to you in case there's a day that you think, I'm not sure what to do. The only thing we need to do in those moments is find a way to tap into the joy, to help ourselves come back into alignment with what is right and what is true and what is possible for any single one of us. The first thing that I've learned about myself from sharing my story, and I share my story all the time now. in, in 2008, I launched uh, a community for survivors and built an entire website around education for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I thought that I was all alone in my trauma. And I thought when I started blogging, nobody would understand anything that I said because my trauma was so individually mine. Um, But what I learned happily was that there are so many other people who felt like me. And in in sharing that story, I speak now, I've written an entire book about From Trauma to Joy. And um, and I've created this whole community at HealMyPTSD.com to share that transformation of how we go from trauma to joy and everything in between. What what I've learned is that we're never as alone as we feel. We all think, oh, I'm so individual. I'm I'm so, quote unquote, special in this experience that nobody else can understand it. And and the thing is, we're all human. So regardless of our individual uh, experiences, our universal experience is what connects us. And it's in that connection of understanding that we, that we frankly stand beside each other in all of these moments that I think the beauty evolves. And, and so that's what I've learned most from sharing my story, that we are all connected regardless of what, what we've experienced or who we've become at this base level of joy and transformation, we stand as one. And my biggest dream is that everyone would learn the power of joy and and that everyone would be able to find a way to tap into what their joy is is because I think this world would be way more balanced way more happy way more collaborative way more peaceful if everyone lived in the joy frequency so my biggest part in trying to help create that dream is to continue talking about joy and how we can transform through it and 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 then to create ways that we all do it together because when we bring all of our energy together in the place of joy Anything is
0: possible. Absolutely anything at all. This is Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Join us. Share your story. For more information and to get involved, visit SeekTheJoyPodcast.com. This series airs the third week of every month. And make sure to join us for Seek the Joy Tuesday. Until then, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening.